Good morning and welcome to Current Radio. It's Wednesday, January 17th. Today we'll be discussing how the super-rich are urging politicians at Davos to tax their wealth and the EU presidency's warning about the test democracy will face in the 2024 U.S. elections. Plus, we delve into The Rebels, a new book exploring the transformation of the Democratic Party by populists and RFK Jr.'s efforts to expand ballot access by starting new political parties. This coverage and more, up next. Welcome to Current Radio's Politics Station. Please enjoy today's selection of political news. In an unusual turn of events, over 250 billionaires and millionaires are calling for wealth taxes to fund better public services globally. They've made this appeal to the political elite gathered at the World Economic Forum in Davos. Abby, can you shed some light on this? Absolutely, Michael. This group of wealthy individuals, which includes Disney heir Abigail Disney, actor Brian Cox, and Valerie Rockefeller, have penned an open letter titled Proud to Pay. They're asking for a tax on the wealthiest in society, arguing that it won't significantly impact their standard of living, but could be a significant investment in our shared future. It's interesting to see this kind of self-awareness and initiative from the super-rich. What kind of impact could such a wealth tax have? Well, a recent poll of the super-rich showed that 74% support higher taxes on wealth to address the cost-of-living crisis and improve public services. The Trades Union Congress suggested last year that a modest 1.7% wealth tax on the UK's richest could raise over £10 billion for public services. The potential impact is significant. So... It seems there's a consensus among the wealthy that they should be taxed more. But what's the holdup? Why hasn't this been implemented yet? That's a good question, Michael. Guy Singh Watson, founder of Riverford, a vegetable box delivery company, expressed frustration over the lack of leadership from elected representatives to implement such a tax. The sentiment is echoed by many of the signatories who feel that extreme wealth is a threat to democracy and that inequality has reached a tipping point. This is indeed a fascinating development. It's not every day that you hear the super-rich calling for higher taxes on themselves. Thanks for the insights, Abby. Now, in a shift of focus, the European Union presidency has issued a stark warning about the upcoming U.S. election, suggesting that the foundations of democracy will be tested. Abby, our correspondent for Current, is here to delve into this. Abby, what can you tell us about the EU's concerns? Thanks, Michael. Prime Minister Alexander de Croo of Belgium, who currently holds the rotating EU presidency, has expressed concerns about the potential impact of the U.S. election on the transatlantic alliance. His comments come in the wake of former President Donald Trump's landslide win in the Republican Party's Iowa caucuses. So what exactly is de Croo worried about? De Croo is essentially worried about a return to the America First policy that characterized the Trump administration from 2017 to 2021. During that period, U.S. relations with Europe suffered due to disagreements over trade, security, and military cooperation. DeCruz fears that if Trump wins the election in November, these tensions could escalate, potentially leading to a further unraveling of the transatlantic alliance. But DeCruz also said that the EU should not fear this perspective, but embrace it. What did he mean by that? DeCruz is advocating for a more self-reliant Europe. He believes that the EU should be prepared to stand on its own, regardless of the outcome of the U.S. election. This is a sentiment that has been growing in Europe, particularly in the face of increasing global uncertainties. 
And DeCrew also mentioned that this year will be a test for democracies and liberties. Can you expand on that? Yes, DeCrew was referring not only to the U.S. election, but also to the European Parliament elections scheduled for June. He sees these elections as a test of the strength and resilience of democratic institutions, both in the U.S. and in Europe. The outcomes could have significant implications for the future of transatlantic relations. It's clear that the stakes are high and the world will be watching closely as these elections unfold. Thanks for the insights, Abby. Now shifting our focus to domestic politics, we've seen a significant change in the political landscape with the far right's influence on the Republican Party often taking center stage. However, the far left sway within the Democratic Party is equally noteworthy. Abby, our political correspondent, is here to discuss this. Abby, can you shed some light on this? Absolutely, Michael. The far left's influence in the Democratic Party has been growing, particularly with figures like Elizabeth Warren, Bernie Sanders, and Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez. Joshua Green, author of The Rebels, Elizabeth Warren, Bernie Sanders, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, and the struggle for a new American politics, traces the rise of this modern-day progressive movement back to the 2008 financial crisis. Interesting. So according to Green, the 2008 financial crisis was a catalyst for the rise of progressive politics. Yes, exactly. Green argues that the 2008 crash and its aftermath gave rise to a populist backlash on both the right and the left. On the left, this backlash led to the rise of figures like Warren, Sanders, and Ocasio-Cortez. Green also explores how Warren, who was a Harvard Law professor at the time of the crisis, used her position as an overseer of the government's bailout of Wall Street to articulate a version of left-wing populism that hadn't had a voice in recent American political history. And how does Green view the progressive influence on President Biden's agenda? Green sees a significant shift in Biden's approach compared to his earlier political career. He points out that Biden, once known as a friend of business, has evolved to govern more like an economic populist, focusing on policies that benefit the middle class. This evolution, according to Green, illustrates the effect that these populists have had on the Democratic Party. How does Green differentiate between the Democratic brand of populism and the kind of populism that Trump supporters prefer? Green argues that the populism he writes about, associated with figures like Warren, Sanders, and Ocasio-Cortez, is focused on economic populism. In contrast, he sees right-wing populism, as exemplified by Trump, as more focused on cultural issues, such as immigration and nationalism. While there are areas of overlap, such as a hawkish stance towards trade, Green sees the cultural element as the key distinguishing factor. And finally, does Green see a limit to the support for progressive candidates? Green does suggest that there may be a ceiling for candidates who are explicitly defined as left-wing progressives. While progressive politics seem to be taking off during the 2019 Democratic primaries, neither Sanders nor Warren emerged as the Democratic nominee. Green suggests that the future of this brand of progressivism may be through politicians like Biden, who come across as more moderate, but still implement many of the policies that these progressive figures have championed. That's a fascinating perspective. Thanks for sharing these insights, Abby. In other political news, Robert F. Kennedy Jr. is making headlines with his efforts to create a new political party, the We the People Party, in several states. Abby, our political correspondent, is here to shed some light on this development. Abby, what's the strategy behind this move? Michael, it's a fascinating move. Kennedy Jr. is essentially trying to bypass the traditional route to get on the ballot in these states. 
by creating a new party, he can get on the ballot with fewer signatures than if he were running as an individual candidate. This is particularly relevant in states like California and Delaware, where party registration is required to get on the ballot. So it's a strategic maneuver. But how does this align with Kennedy Jr.'s political journey so far? Kennedy Jr. started his presidential run as a Democratic candidate, but switched to run as an independent in October. This move was a departure from his family's long history with the Democratic Party. He's been critical of both parties, calling their leaders corrupt and the two-party system as a whole flawed. This move to create a new party seems to be an extension of his dissatisfaction with the current political landscape. Interesting, but Kennedy Jr. isn't exactly a mainstream candidate, is he? No, he's not. He's a long-shot candidate for the presidential race. He's also known for promoting conspiracy theories about various topics, including COVID-19 and vaccines. Despite this, he's managed to garner about 15% support in three-way polling with President Joe Biden and former President Donald Trump, according to the latest Real Clear Politics polling average. That's quite a significant number, and it'll be interesting to see how this plays out. Thanks for the insights, Abby. As we wrap up our stories for today, we appreciate you listening to Current Radio and look forward to bringing you more updates tomorrow.